Good afternoon. This afternoon, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Will Willimon. He is a professor of the practice of Christian ministry at Duke Divinity School and previously served as the dean of the chapel at Duke. He has also served as the bishop of the Northern Alabama Conference of the United Methodist Church. Dr. Willimon is a fantastic preacher, an esteemed scholar, and a prolific author. He has written more than 60 books. That's 6-0. That's more than most Americans have read, Will, in their entire life. He has had enormous impact upon the church and the formation of clergy. A study by the Pulpit and Pew Research Center found that Dr. Willimon is one of the most widely read authors among mainline Protestant pastors. His most recent book, just released this spring, is entitled, Who Lynched Willie Earl? Preaching to Confront Racism. As a professor of pastoral ministry here at the seminary, I use his text, Pastor, every semester when I teach this course. It is the highest evaluated aspect of the class. People love the text <laughs> so much. Uh, so we won't be using that anymore. <laughs> it is a delight to have a good friend and a colleague, Bishop William Willimon. I felt like you were my friends until the introduction, and now you're all sitting there saying, we'll decide uh, about that, but wonderful to be back uh, at this wonderful institution that has been so kind to me. Um, I remember, uh, I, I was asking a PTS graduate the other day, I said, hey, are you going back to our reunion? And he said, you're not a graduate of Princeton Seminary. And I said, I forgot. I, I like to think that I am because I've been around a lot. And, uh, but I'm glad you are. Uh, after leading a congregation for 20 years, embedded eight years in the ministry of, of oversight of over 600 pastors, 800 churches, uh, I say with authority, the most important quality in pastoral leadership is adaptability. Supple, creative ability to respond to the machinations of the future, the specific demands of changing context. The pastor who says, now this is the way I did it that worked for me at First Church Des Moines, and so I'm going to repeat that here, uh, is bound for failure. The pastor says the strengths indicator indicates that these are my top four strengths, and so that's what I'll lead with. Uh, usually indicates a pastor who refuses to grow. I ask a distinguished church growth consultant, in all your work with pastors, what do you think is, is the quality we got to have? And he said, the willingness to reinvent, to bend your life to the demands of the institution, to serve 
by a constant willingness to change in ways the institution uh, finds difficult. This year I commemorate the 43rd anniversary of my ordination, an event that I noticed that none of you noticed. Uh, <laughs> and looking back, I realized that in so many ways, I never got to serve the church that my seminary trained me to serve. Suppleness, adaptability, reinvention, rejuvenation, realignment, essential for those who lead. People change, the world changes, so must we. Um, but this is Princeton Theological Seminary. And so none of that that I just said has any relevance for you. Uh, I don't want to waste your time. And if you're here for your 40th reunion, you don't have that much more time. Uh, but uh, as a PTS alum, you know that neither theories of leadership nor practical guidance in organizational administration are as interesting as the God who summons people like you and me into the leadership of God's church. I teach a course at Duke called Introduction to Ordained Leadership, a kind of sheep dip of a course they put first-year students through. And in the first paper, I always had them describe in about five pages your call into the ministry. How did you get here? Uh, what Describe that path that brought you here to seminary. And year after year, I got back a lot of adolescent uh, crap and uh, <laughs> subjectivity. And, and uh, now, now I ask, describe the God who would call somebody like you into the ministry. <laughs> and those are really good papers. Uh, we, uh, your call into the ministry is not as interesting as the God that called you into the ministry. Now, um, in 1539, shortly before becoming a Protestant, Calvin wrote, we are not our own, we are God's. As you know, Calvin's desire was to be a scholar, uh, to be a, a quiet, scholarly writer. As you know, God didn't care. God made Calvin a preacher, preached five times a week in Geneva alone. Though he was ambitious to use his intellect in service to the church to gain academic acclaim, Calvin said, God turned my course in another direction, which was an understatement. We are not our own. We are God's. And I'm betting that nearly everybody in this room knows firsthand if we had the time to tell what it means to be jerked around by God, a living God. Last month, historian Lyndall Roper published Martin Luther, Renegade and Prophet. It's a beautifully written book that purports in over 500 pages to examine the inner life, the sexual yearnings, the paternal struggles of the real Martin Luther. Like most historians, Roper, renders an exclusively naturalistic explanation of Luther and the Reformation. Luther's emotional screwed-upness explains Luther. 
and therefore the Reformation. <laughs> and if you're looking for a godless history of the Reformation, I recommend Roper's book. <laughs> I much prefer historians like Jane Dempsey Douglas. Did any of you study under Jane Dempsey Douglas? Everybody, okay, great. Um, her fine article, The Lively Work of the Spirit in the Reformation, she demonstrates how Luther, Calvin, as well as Anabaptists explained themselves as those who were merely obedient, driven by a Holy Spirit into a revolutionary reformation none of them thought up themselves. In other words, the reformation cannot be explained without reference to the curious work of a living God. Why the reformation? because God wanted it. Luther, you know, when I ask uh, what he did to ignite the Protestant Reformation in Germany, replied that I sat in Wittenberg and I drank lots of good Wittenberg beer and I watched God work. Church happens whenever we pray, Vene Creator Spiritus, bring it on, Holy Spirit, Revelation 22:20. Shake our foundation, send us forth, kick us out, set us on fire. Give us church more interesting than it would be if we built it by ourselves. The perennial challenge of Christian ministry, I have found, is to keep up with the mobility of the Trinity. As Mark frequently reiterates, and here's uh, a quote from uh, his uh, Bart's uh, Church Dogmatics 4.1, uh, the church is Christ's work, the gift of God's Holy Spirit. If Christ does not give it, then even its ostensibly most holy work is profane. Its preaching is simply a kind of explanation and instruction or enthusiastic protestation. Its baptism and Lord's Supper are religious rites like others. Its theology is a kind of philosophy. Its mission a species of propaganda, etc. They may all have their interest and importance and practical value from other standpoints, intellectual, moral, psychological, sociological, but they cannot be holy without the work of a living Lord of the community. No institutions within which its activity is done, no goodwill on the part of the people who act, no old or new technique which is used can make them holy or prevent them from becoming merely secular. Rowan Williams says, that's why the creeds don't invite us to believe in the church, but rather our creeds ask us to believe the church. That is, despite the church's faults, which we know to be many, the church is the primary way God has chosen to take up room in the world, to be God with us. Having a well-functioning, well-financed, efficient institution, no matter how much good it does in the world, is not yet to have church. Only the Holy Spirit can make church. The church, even the one I serve, is not our creation, uh, but rather it is God's creation breathed by the Spirit at Pentecost, it's God's gift for the world's salvation. 
If the church is to have some new reformed future in American exile, it's up to the agency of God, and secondarily up to those of us who lead, who hitch on to what new thing God is doing. I'm saying that an abiding temptation in ministry is not adultery, don't flatter yourselves, uh, but rather the temptation to form a church through exclusively worldly means. That's why seminary church administration courses are permanently susceptible to the charge of atheism, tempting novice clergy to substitute merely human organizational management techniques for empty-handed pneumatological dependence. The church lives not by savvy worldly wisdom strategies for church growth or helpful organizational insights, but it lives prophetically in all times and places driven by the prodding of the Holy Spirit. In his great book, uh, Pastor, uh, the pastor memoir, uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, describes his call into the ministry as a kind of accidental pastor. He just, somebody needed a basketball coach for a kid's team in a church in Manhattan. He was at Union. He said, okay. And then somebody said, hey, uh, you're a Pentecostal background, but uh, you ought to choose a respectable church. And he said, okay, fine, I'll be a Presbyterian. And then he moved to Bel Air, Maryland, and he started meeting the Bible study with a group of Christians in the living room. Got too big for the living room, so they went down to the basement, and then they... And then he got too big for that, and he said, all right, y'all, if you want to build a church building, go ahead. I'm not going to do it with you. You'll have to do that. And so they did it, and then there. And, you know, come on, Gene. Uh, you know, you're a masterful linguist and a wonderful interpreter of Scripture and a great mind, and come on. But then I realized uh, Peterson is, is pointing to the heart of, of all of our ministries, and that is... Uh, the work of God, uh, in us, through us, in spite of us. As Calvin said, our lives aren't our own. A living God surprises, enjoys commissioning us for outrageous assignments, calls betrayers to be disciples, turns the desert into a garden, likes nothing better than create something out of nothing and raise the dead and transform boring institutional ministry into miraculous adventure. Uh, we're about to find out just how much you really believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, said an aging bishop to me the night I was elected bishop. Uh, and her prediction uh, came true. Uh, these days, with a sad state of mainline Protestantism, it drives us church leaders to make good on our theological convictions. If Jesus Christ has not been bodily raised from the dead, we're good as dead. Either God is up to something, an active agent even in our sorry congregations and denominations, or ministry is misery. The fundamental question is, who is God? And what is expected in service to that kind of God? It makes all the difference in church leadership that 2 Corinthians 5.19, Bart's favorite verse, uh, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to God, often working as agent in ways we don't comprehend. Though we're most comfortable with a deity who is inactive, arcane, and aloof, 
Jesus Christ reveals God as active, interventionist, and corporally involved. Whatever good it is, it's not Christian ministry until God shows up. God not as a general principle or a limp higher value, but as active agent. According to John 1.14, the, the Word has gotten personal. It's become flesh. It's moved in with us. And that's why the great pastoral theologian Andrew Purvis says that the question for us clergy to ask, and he says this in books like The Crucifixion of Ministry and The Resurrection of Ministry, the question is, who is the incarnate Savior of the world? And what's he doing here, today, now, in this specific ministerial context that engages us? I was attempting to comfort an afflicted pastor. Uh, I admired him greatly for his leadership in planning a PCA congregation for 20-somethings in a part of town where three Presbyterian churches had given up and died. He had entered, he said, a dry season. His once vibrant congregation now seemed to him an uninhabitable desert. His marriage was in difficulty, his health had deteriorated, and I asked him if he had come to the point finally where perhaps he should find some other way to exercise his vocation. He said, you know, I've enjoyed nearly all of my years of ministry. God has blessed me with times of great fruitfulness. But as you know, it's so hard to work for God when God turns ugly. And I said, what? No, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm a cheery, can-do, liberal, refuse to worship anything less than an exclusively upbeat, always over-the-top God who plants but never plucks, who always produces new fruit on the vine without ever having to weed or to prune. I really admired a depressed, downcast, reformed pastor. Maybe that's a tautology. Um, who had a theology, a God so large that he could admit to the pain of a dry season of ministry. And that conversation made me go deeper into my theology, saying, are you willing to serve a God who makes alive and kills? It's not grace if it's programmable or predictable. God is sovereign, which means for us, free to bless and free not to bless our ministerial efforts. God can be invoked by us, but God is free to show up or not. I'm saying that some of your biggest leadership failures are due not to your cowardice or ineptitude, but they're due to Jesus. Now, the great question for our ministry is not only who is Christ, but what is Jesus up to now? And how can I get this people to hitch on to it? Um, our challenges in the present moment are bigger than institutional. They are Christological. If we're confused about Christ, that is, who Christ is and what Christ is up to, will engage in merely structural tinkering 
that undercuts the church's peculiar vocation with anxious measures designed for merely institutional survival and compromises our witness to the resurrection. As Bart often exclaimed, Gott nimmer ruit, no rest for the living God. Through Jesus, we know a ubiquitous God who refuses to locate, to remain sedate and parochial and static, or to be contained or constrained even by our most glorious institutions. Did not the Reformers protest against what they judged to be Catholic attempts to institutionalize and dispense God? Perhaps in our present moment, we mainline Protestants are being given a fresh appreciation for the dangers of all human attempts to stabilize, to domesticate a living God. The Reformation, uh, through Karl Barth, uh, gave us that tag, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, the church reformed, always reforming. It doesn't mean, uh, as has sometimes been interpreted by liberal Protestantism in matters of doctrine, hey, anything goes. Uh, rather, I think it means for those of us called by God for leadership, I think it means uh, that the church must never ossify, must always be open to rebuke, to correction, to invitation, and therefore reformation by the Word of God. The church is God's creation, recreation, and is subservient to Scripture. There's, there's, there's a reformation thought par excellence. Uh, I... Uh, the church is never the agent of its own reformation. Or as the PCUSA says in its brief statement of faith, we belong to God. Jesus is peripatetic, always on the move. You can look it up in any of the Gospels. Uh, and this implies we cannot be with Jesus if we are unwilling to relocate my father-in-law was for 60 years in the Methodist ministry in South Carolina. His last congregation in the uh, 70s was uh, burned over by then uh, by the raging uh, neo-charismatic movement, uh, forcing the previous two pastors uh, to leave the ministry. I saw Mr. Parker and I asked him how things were going in his spirit filled to the point of overheated church. And he said to me, he clenched his fist and said, I have preached nothing but the humanity of Christ for the last three months. I have got to find a way to get this crowd back on Chalcedonian ground. And I, as a young pastor, was just amazed at how can you be three years away from your retirement and have to completely start over. Uh, preach what you don't enjoy preaching uh, for the sake of, of the church and the gospel. I tell students in my introduction to ordained leadership class, hey, I'm going to do my best to share with you what I've learned in my years of ministry in the hope that some of my hard-earned insights may be helpful to you. But 
I want you to imbibe my wisdom with caution, with critical awareness that you will not be allowed by God to serve the church that I served. You can't lead as I led because, well, the culture changes, the future presents new challenges, but hey, everybody knows that. No, you can't duplicate the shape of my ministry because of the work of a living God. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, Robert Jensen, says, uh, the way you can tell a living God from a dead God, that is an idol, is a dead God will never shock you. Uh, to be a faithful Christian, you've got to, it helps if you can enjoy surprises. Uh, when somebody offered a workshop at our school entitled, How to Deal with the Stress of Difficult Parishioners, <laughs> I told the students, none of you need to attend. Uh, just to put your minds at ease from what I've seen in ministry, not even the most difficult, demanding layperson is able to produce as much stress as that evoked by Jesus Christ. Uh, your problem in ministry is, is how to deal with this living, demanding Savior. In all our institutional work and renovation, uh, we begin with the assumption that God is the initiator and the chief protagonist in the church. Ministry is something God does to you, not done by you. I was ordained in uh, about a month from now, in, in 1972, uh, the morning after the United Methodist Church started losing members. And uh, that has continued unabated throughout my ministry. Uh, the culture has disenfranchised the main line. It would have been so much nicer if the church could have disenfranchised the culture, but that, that's another thing. Uh, but yeah, but here's a deeper thought. Uh, what if God is in the disenfranchisement of my church? I hope that I never lose the shock uh, that motivated many of Israel's greatest prophets, like Jeremiah, who interpreted Israel's tragic exile not as something brought about by the bad Babylonians, but rather as just punishment orchestrated by a good God who created and owned Israel. Jerusalem destroyed, the temple in ruin, God's chosen people forced into Babylonian exile. A dear person came up to me after a presentation I had made at a retirement center uh, and said uh, perhaps I had maybe said something critical about the president. And uh, <laughs> not of the seminary, but the United States. And, uh, and uh, she said, don't, don't you think that God could be using this man to work his will? Don't you think God can do that? And I said, wow, that is an interesting thought. So, you know, I thought like, this was Herod, you're saying, no, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, okay, yeah, so we're being punished for uh, 
America? Wow, I don't know that I'm bold enough to say that, but I can't think of anybody better to do that than Donald Trump. Okay, now it's an intriguing thought. So you're saying it's like Ehud the fat, or you know, God is sent. Okay, that is a fascinating thought. Um, well, you know, you, you think this crazy stuff uh, when you're following the kind of savior like, like we've got. Uh, might God have a hand in our relinquishments? Dare we think that God might be taking us into the wilderness, not only to chastise us, but to free us from our idols? Is our theology robust enough to consider the possibility that mainline exilic Protestantism and its dislocation is part of the providence of God? A seminarian asked me uh, when I was bishop, uh, Hey, if I stand up and speak up in a prophetic way to the important issues of our day, can I count on you as my bishop to back me up, to have my back? And I said, wow, I would love to believe that I'm that potent, <laughs> that, I, that I could really uh, help protect you from Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, he, he did warn us up front that there's a cross that fits your back just fine. Um, you know, it's a pity you're not applying for uh, ordained ministry in 1950. Because back then, not many clergy risk anything worthy of needing a bishop to protect them. Uh, not much friction between the church and the world when we think it's our world. But alas for your desire for security, that's all over now. Nowadays, bishops lack the power to protect you from the dangerous assignments on which Jesus might send you. I, I suggest you try the U.S. Navy uh, because they'll give you a uniform and they'll evaluate you fairly, which is more than I can say for the Methodist Church, and uh, they give you lots of protection and armor and, and um, uh, on the other hand, uh, for those who have appropriate Christological rationale for their ministries, well, it's, a, it's a great time to be the church. Uh, in, in teaching in a seminary here to the end of my career, uh, <laughs> I'm meeting with the dean next week. I may be at the end of my career. Anyway, <laughs> um, but let's say toward the end of my career is the way I like. But... Um, what a great time to be the church. Uh, I, I almost envy the people who go, I, I, I tell them, you know, when, when I showed up at my first little church, South Carolina town, I was asked to join the Rotary, put on the Boy Scout board, the YMCA board, asked to join Kiwanis, and asked to pray at the city council meeting that week. Uh, and they look at me and say, Man, you're older than you, you look even. Uh, well, uh, that's over. And uh, it also seemed like when I was a young pastor, a lot of times they were saying, hey kid, be careful. Be real careful now. We don't want you to screw up something good. Uh, we're the largest denomination in the country. And, um, I predict that today's new pastors will never hear that phrase. Uh, if you love to change things, if you like to innovate, to go head to head with principalities and powers, oh, what a marvelous time 
to experience the adventure of leadership in the name of Jesus, uh, to be part of the continuing Pentecostal commotion rather than be stuck in service to an institution that's no more than the world could produce as well through exclusively worldly means. I'm, at present, I'm grieving uh, for the state of the United Methodist Church. But then I hear God asking me, hey, how do you know that maybe I'm doing my old kind of plant and pluck up Jeremiah kind of thing? Uh, are you sure that, that this is simply natural decline and death? Or might this be divine transformation? Well, God only knows. And I mean that literally. Thank you. Literally. No, you don't believe in biblical literalism, but that, yeah. Um, what if the significant measurement of the strength of your leadership is not what you get the church to do for God, but what risk God induces you to take for God? Uh, I teach this class in spring, the local church in mission to God's world. And uh, the, uh, what I have them do is to read through the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, as a, I say, this is an early Christian missionary handbook. Uh, let, let's read it as that and see what we can get from it. So they read through it, and we discussed it along in the class. Toward the end of the class, I said, what do you notice? about the Acts of the Apostles and maybe notice in comparison with our church. And uh, the Christians will, will call out things like, uh, no planning, okay? Uh, no strategies, I say, no real estate, uh, no goal setting, no MDiv, no consultants. Uh, and I said, shut up. Um, <laughs> the, the bishop appointed me to a church in Durham for two months. It turned out to be over a year. And um, it, it was an urban church. It had been in decline uh, for about a decade, two decades. And so I thought, by the time I'm here, I really want to do what I can to energize it for the future. So I asked someone who was active in Durham urban ministries and all, uh, hey, got any advice for me? Who do I need to talk to? Uh, wh where, where do I need to, to get the church focused? And, and he said, drag queen bingo. And I said, drag queen bingo? He said, yeah, I think it's a national movement, but said, it's in the armory right behind your church every Saturday night, and it is the hottest <clears throat> thing in town. And he said, it's the only thing going on to that degree around your congregation. <clears throat> And he said, you, you haven't been? And I said, no. He said, you need to get down there. You get, get some of your people down there and I'll mix it up down there. These are some people renewing the community. I think they do it for Habitat for Humanity or something. And uh, I said, wow, I don't know. It just, I'm not sure they could take that. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you wanted to get into evangelism. Well, uh, oh, so you just want to keep this, this old building afloat? Okay, I wouldn't go. Anyway, so I got a couple of lay people and I went down to Drag Queen Bingo one Saturday night. And, uh, you know, uh, and it, it, it was different for me. It was a boundary and 
uh, interesting, uh, seemed overly dressed people for bingo, but, uh, and so went in there, and, and so um, the uh, person in charge got, a, got us a table with some people at the table, and so we started talking, and uh, it was amazing, and I said to them, uh, uh, hey, uh, we're Methodist. Uh, I'm a Methodist minister, and uh, we're coming down here to, to learn, and, uh, and we started talking, and, and so I, I said, uh, why don't you, you know, uh, tell what's God done in your life lately? And, and over the music, uh, people told some stories, and some of the stories were so heart-rending and tragic, I, all I could say was, I'm so sorry, oh. And, uh, but other stories we're, we're talking about, you know, uh, they, they were saying, wow, I, I'd go back to church. Does, does your church talk about God? Because last time I've been to church, it's about how to have a happier marriage and how to feel positively about yourself. And said, look at me, would you feel positive? And, and, and going on like this. Well, well, toward the end of the discussion, uh, I said, gosh, this is wonderful, but it's 1130 and I'm working tomorrow, and so I got to go. And uh, so the person sitting next to me with his long red gloves said, uh, took over straight in my tie and said, I want you to know that I respect you so much. And I said, oh, that, that's nice. What, because I'm a, a pastor? And she said, no, no, because you come out here on a Saturday night wearing a tie that is 15 years out of date. Uh, damn, you must be secure in who you are. He said, I, I couldn't do that. I, I, I respect you so much. And I said, I knew that one day God would punish me for all those bad sermons I've preached. God has sent you to me. I know that. I'm taking it. Um, uh, the... It was like my best night at that church because it wasn't, I, I didn't limit Jesus to, to that church. Uh, some time ago, you decided to test yourself, to prepare yourself for a demanding profession, and you risk PTS. And you, you came out here well-informed in the faith, theologically astute, knowing how to form a church in the Reformed tradition, and you're back at this convocation, I expect, because you want to keep growing and, and keep learning and do the best you can uh, to lead the church. But this lecture is given on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation at Princeton Theological Seminary. So this lecture is not about you. It's about God. Amen. Thank you. Amen.